My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Normally doctors, solicitors, accountants, once they're established, if they're comfortable where they are and they don't have um, desires to, to rapidly expand or to be bought out, uh, normally they're going to be good long-term tenants. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with commercial property buyers agent, Brian Minical. We discover how he made the shift from investing in residential properties, 14 of them to be exact, to commercial properties, why professionals like solicitors and doctors make the best long-term tenants, his greatest aha moment and much, much more. As a commercial property buyer's agent, there are a variety of tasks Manikal does in a day, ranging from researching properties to assisting his clients in purchasing property. As the name suggests, I basically uh, specialise in just finding commercial property for my buyers. On a daily basis, I'm uh, researching if there's a property I'm interested in, I'll ask for the information memorandum, memorandum on the potential properties, get in contact with my clients and um, do, do a rough visa and then where it's appropriate, we make an offer and um, basically help the client uh, follow through to uh, a successful purchase of the property. But Nickel specialises across the commercial space, although he does find that most of his clients do tend to focus on retail office accommodation and some on industrial. Some of the properties that we've purchased have been small uh, shopping centres uh, and things like that. I haven't uh, got too many clients that are interested in some of the more specialised areas of service stations or childcare centres and things like that. So it's really those uh, those particular areas that we, we seem to focus on and that's driven uh, particularly by our client needs. And how long have you been in the commercial space for? Probably getting close to 20 years now. Wow. Is there a particular location that you focus on for commercial property? I'm licensed in Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria. So they're the areas that I concentrate on and depending on, again, what the needs of my clients are in terms of uh, the the yields that they're after, that sometimes uh, dictates a little bit about uh, which state we may look in and uh, certainly which areas. But um, normally I try to avoid um, very regional areas and 
you know, towns with possibly less than 10,000 10, population. McNichol states that commercial property is garnering a lot more interest now that people know the kind of returns it can generate. And when working with the client, he tries to figure out what it is that they require out of the property that they purchase, be it a recession-proof tenancy or a high net return. I think um, particularly with the uh, returns that people are getting on residential in particularly Sydney and Melbourne now, um, the secret's out that uh, just what returns commercial properties can can achieve and normally with a lot less uh, hassles involved. It's um, really a matter of sitting down with the client, uh, listening to what, what they require, whether it uh, you know be long tenancies. Um, I guess the, the net return, I also uh, look to try and, if it's a first-time investor, try and find a, a tenancy that is as I call it, uh, kind of going to be uh, recession-proof. So that was part of the strategy that we started out with. Um, So we ended up with doctor surgeries and things like that. And um, a lot of my clients have self-managed super funds, so uh, we've got to be mindful of the requirements of, um, you know, what can be done within the super funds, how how many tenancies... There may be, um, and you know, work within those guidelines as well. For the majority of McNichols' life, although he has travelled and lived in other parts of Australia, he has been based in Brisbane. After we were married, I went to uh, Townsville and went to James Cook Uni up there for a while. Came back to Brisbane and uh, to University of Queensland. So most of our most of our married life has been in Brisbane. We've had. Um, a couple of stints in Townsville, Hamilton in New Zealand and in, uh, two stints in Sydney. So, But the majority of the time has been uh, based in Brisbane. You mentioned that you went up to Townsville and also went to University of Queensland as well. What did you study there? Commerce in, in both. Um, I, our eldest son was born in Townsville, so um, I had to basically, or well, I ended up with a job back in Brisbane so had to transfer from James Cook back to UQ. Uh, As part of his career journey, McNichol held a variety of roles during and after he achieved his university degree. I started off in the clerical role and then as uh, progressed in uni, I ended up with accounting roles and then together with a couple of other uh, friends, we started up a taxation and financial planning business. So it was very much doing the traditional um, job type roles. Um, it was only later um, when I ended up with a contract with the Queensland government uh, that provided a bit of stability. And um, that's when I really got stuck into the, um, the property side of things. We had dabbled a little, a little bit prior to that, but um, my income from the accounting and uh, setting up the business and having uh, three young children uh, kind of meant that, you know, we really uh, were restricted in just what uh, what we could do with property. How many years were you within the accounting practice? Probably would have been about close to 20 years. Great. Did you deal with different types of businesses or was there a specific type of business that you dealt with? We concentrated on mainly small businesses and um, 
quite a variety across the, across the board in that. Um, also with um, you know retirees, people planning to retire, um, and then seeking advice on you know where uh, people could place their money. Um, at that stage, when uh, you know people wanting to get ahead, you suggested negative gearing and going into buying property negatively geared. So that was uh, very much the, I guess, the advice that I'd given people at that time and advice that uh, I followed myself. After his accounting practice, McNichol moved into more of a contract role where he went from being an accounting type of roles to property consultant, making his entry into commercial property. I'd originally gone in for three months with the Queensland government uh, successfully completed that and then a few months later they asked me to come in for six weeks to review a financial management practice manual and um, basically I said that it left a bit to be desired so they said okay we'll you know redo it (laughs) and uh, that uh, six weeks ended up being close to 19 years. Things changed. Originally, it was uh, particularly to do with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island uh, councils. Um, I had some work to do with uh, Disability Services Queensland, and I gradually moved from the accounting and kind of the internal audit type role for the councils um, through to more of a um, a property consultant, I guess, we had to go through project services um, to actually deal with real estate agents and uh, people like that. But I could advise project services as to what our requirements were, what we were prepared to pay and things like that. So probably for about 10 years, I was doing that role um, with office fit-outs, office leasing, uh, buying and selling property and that type of stuff. So it, it was looking looking in hindsight, it was um, you know quite a valuable uh, area that I ended up in. But prior to entering into commercial property, McNichol invested in residential and would buy various types of properties. Our first residential was an off-the-plan purchase in Spring Hill in Brisbane, a little one-bedroom unit which we furnished and uh, rented out as. I guess, to uh, executive rentals, and that was quite successful. We then moved on and purchased various properties uh, for either splitting or um, renovating with the idea of sometimes it was uh, just buy, renovate, sell. Um, A lot of the properties we purchased were good quality properties in the western suburbs where we purchased. We either moved the house or demolished the house and then um, split the property and then built. So um, we've had quite a quite a uh, an array of different re- uh, residential property developments and things like that as well. Coming up after a break, we'll delve into what inspired Brian McNichol to start his property journey. And I was lucky enough to hear a uh, one speaker, Peter J. Daniels. He's a multi-millionaire in, from Adelaide, South Australia. 
his aha moment. At that stage, I thought, well, I don't know very much about commercial properties, so I didn't proceed. How a doctor's surgery provided him with stable tenants? Well, it was one tenant, but he had about five doctors working out of the out of that building, plus uh, there were visiting consultants that would come in as well. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. McNichol decided to buy a property in New Zealand after the banks did not allow him to proceed when he already had a couple of properties. It's got a lot of learnings. <laughs> when we hit the brick wall with the banks uh, in Australia, as most people do, once they get a couple of properties, the banks will say, no, you, know, you can't proceed any further. We took some money and went to New Zealand and purchased a little uh, property in a timber town called Tokoroa. It was a little cheapy. 20,000 New Zealand dollars and we purchased that off a couple of marketeers who'd go to New Zealand, basically find property, put an option on it for 90 to 100 100 days and then on sell. Um, We purchased that property sight unseen and we also went with the property management that these marketeers had organised. All had gone fairly well for uh, about two years and then the timber mill cut their staff and our property became vacant. A few months later we received uh, a letter from the Tokoroa police suggesting that we needed to do something with our house which had become vandalised both inside and out and they'd sent some photos over. Um, Basically we we managed to sell that one for about 22,000 New Zealand dollars in the condition that it was. So, you know, we were fortunate, but um, we certainly learned some lessons for that. Um, you know, you don't buy things sight unseen. We select our managing agents ourselves. We don't buy in a one industry town or a town with a relatively small population. So, I guess they're um, things that we still abide by today. Do you remember which year you purchased this? Because I just want to try and put things in perspective on how much 20000 New Zealand dollars was back then. That one possibly would have been back in around about 2002, I think. Uh, 2000, 2002, roughly that time period. So, in comparison to say, for example, purchasing a property in say Brisbane, how much would that have been? Probably back then... Um, Maybe the cheapest we we would have been looking at may have been around the um, hundred and eighty two hundred thousand mark. Gosh, it was still a massive learning lesson. It was, and it meant that we could uh, basically purchase this without having any bank involvement. And the idea was that we would have then used that as a stepping stone to go to the bank later on with a um, unencumbered property that we could then use as collateral for the you know, for the next property over in New Zealand. Upon receiving notice from the police that his property in New Zealand was vandalised, Manickel felt numb and was quite shocked. It raised questions about the property manager, why they hadn't notified us earlier, what were they doing about actually trying to get tenants and all the rest of it. So it raised a lot of questions. But again, you know, we were over here, that was happening over there and all we could do was uh, basically sit down 
work out a strategy and um, we decided that we wanted out of Tokoroa and uh, that's what we did. However, there was a silver lining through purchasing and owning this property. We were fortunate. We changed um, real estate agents, found somebody that was you know, quite proactive and um, I think this, uh, the purchaser was the only offer that we, we had. Um, I had a, a rule that I never sell at a loss <laughs> and um, so we had to negotiate a little bit um, and we were fortunate that, you know, they wanted the property and uh, we, we were successful in not selling at a loss. The vandalism side was, I guess, the small part. Really, it was, uh, you know, purchasing sight unseen. When we did go over later on to Takaroa, you know, there were a few things that we, we learned even in that site visit, uh, which would have been useful in the first place. But, you know, it's water under, water under the bridge. McNichol's parents did invest in property, but not to the great extent. And McNichol credits his interest more to a successful property investor and speaker. My father was an accountant and company secretary, so he spent a lot of time on the share market, uh, both for work and in private. Um, so my first inkling for getting ahead was uh, through the share market. My parents at the time were typical. Uh, they owned or they bought and they uh, paid off their own house, I think. In the time that they were married, they only had three three houses in total, <laughs> and um, it was only later on, after Dad had retired, that they actually purchased a uh, a unit on the, the Gold Coast. So it was very much um, share market influence there. My foray into property was um, I'd attended a, um, a couple of uh, speaking engagements that were being held. Again, back in the 1970s, early 1980s, there wasn't a, you know, the, the market of, uh, well, the plethora of, um, of people going around uh, speaking on property. And I was lucky enough to hear a, uh, one speaker, uh, Peter J. Daniels, he's a multimillionaire in, from Adelaide, South Australia. And um that was possibly the start of uh, the influence on on the property ladder. What's interesting is that's so true. When you said even back in 1970s and 1980s, we never had so much content as we have in today's time that was spread around plus that many speakers. We didn't even have the internet to be able to access that. So I would assume that everything was sort of on newspaper. That would have been quite a lengthy time to be able to get that information that you need to make one decision to purchase a residential property or commercial property. Would that be the case? It was very much so. And I guess one of the things you learn as an accountant is conservatism. So <laughs> I spent a lot of time researching. Uh, my wife's a librarian. So again, you know, there's the research capabilities there. And we, we did... Uh, spend a lot of time looking uh, before we found what we considered was a good property, which was the one in Spring Hill. We, when we, when I said we bought it off the plan, the building was partly uh, constructed, so it wasn't completely off the plan. So we could actually 
put on a hard hat and, and walk around and uh, see the layout of the building. And um, that, that was a, it was a nice little investment and a, a good first investment for us. This first property of McNichols, it did sell in order to fund future property purchases. It was one that probably, uh, it provided a nice rental income, but uh, being an apartment, there was nothing that we could actually do. We couldn't subdivide it or uh, extend it or <laughs> do anything like that. Uh, we did as pretty much as, as much as we could by furnishing it and renting it out to executive rentals. At that stage, um, I think we ended up with um, some movie producers or uh, actors or something and they rented rented it up for uh, quite a number of months. So the kitchen hardly ever got used in the place when we, you know, when they moved out. So. McNichol shares with us one of his light bulb moments, which was when an accountant recommended he diversify his portfolio by getting into commercial properties. We probably had about 14 residential properties at that stage and he said, you know, you should diversify. And... At that stage, I thought, well, I don't know very much about commercial properties, so I didn't proceed. About five years later, I again got told to have a look at commercial property, and this time, because we're hurting uh, financially with the negative gearing, we then looked at uh, commercial. I studied and learned as much about it as I could, and um, then we proceeded with our first purchase, which was a doctor's surgery. It had the potential for um, a high-rise commercial and we'd set parameters for what we were after. So we wanted a, at least an 8% net return. We wanted annual increases. We wanted a, a good lease uh, with options and we wanted a good tenant. So um, the ad for this one originally um, or the, spoke about uh, being vacant possession but when you read the fine print it said that a new lease would be negotiated with the successful purchaser. It's probably why it had been sitting there for a little while and nobody had seen it. So we negotiated a new five-year lease. Uh, we ended up with over 8% um, net yield. We had 3.5% annual increases and we could identify four ex- different exit strategies on the property. So we proceeded with that purchase and that was basically the aha moment for us. And then from from there, um, we then uh, started with the uh, with converting our negative gearing into positive cash flow. Through commercial property? Mainly through commercial property. We did have to, we had to sell down some of the residential and we did that strategically. So we identified what were the properties hurting us the most. Uh, we'd then go and maybe do a bit of a quick renovation, uh, you know, sp- splash a bit of paint around or uh, stage it for the selling, uh, put it on the market and then sell. And then we we repeated and repeated that a couple of times. So it was a combination of um, selling down the residentials that were hurting us plus purchasing the, the new uh, commercial properties. McNichol goes on to share a little bit more about his first commercial property, 
the doctor surgery, and why professionals such as doctors and solicitors are good long-term tenants. It was one tenant, but he had about five doctors working out of the out of that building. Plus, uh, they were visiting um, consultants that would come in as well. Um, there was nothing flash. Um, it was in a good location. You know, had a brand new McDonald's down the end of the street, and there was uh, new developments happening next door so uh, we could see the potential for for that one. Definitely and that's the thing with commercial, it's nothing flash or special. I would assume a doctor doesn't usually change every year or two like a tenant would after 12 months in residential. Well, this tenant or this doctor had been there for 17 or 18 years. He owned the the building and was selling it um, because he'd gone into a business venture with somebody else and needed some money. About two years ago, um, he decided to retire and he then unsold the practice to another doctor that had been there for nine years working with him. <laughs> so, you know, we've got the continuity again of the, the doctors and, you know, people knowing that um, knowing their doctors, they know where they are. So normally doctors, solicitors, accountants, once they're established, if they're comfortable where they are and they don't have um, desires to to rapidly expand or to be bought out, uh, normally they're going to be good long-term tenants. So, inspired by Brian McNichol's journey, we'll keep the conversation going in a future episode of Property Investory, where we'll discuss his strategy. So, uh, we'd buy a 810 square, square meter property. We may move the house to one side. We'd build or maybe sell the, the vacant block of land. His $1.1 million property purchase? It was really nothing flash, but um, it provided a net of about 90 $92,000 a year. The biggest reason why he got into commercial property and become a buyer's agent? Crazy type hours. Uh, one time I came back to one of the train stations and couldn't remember where I parked the car or thought I couldn't remember where I parked the car only to find the car had been pinched. And that's next time in a future episode of Property Investory. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.